0: Just before we get into the message, Nathan, hate to put you on the spot. Any chance you can throw that last slide up that we just did? My one defense, my righteousness, oh God. I, so, interesting thing happened this, this past week. Somebody pointed out to me that… Um, If you're not a Christian, and you don't actually know all the theology behind the things we were singing, that might be confusing to you. Punctuation matters. And we don't typically put punctuation in worship slides. If there was no comma between my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you, that would be confusing, wouldn't it? It would sound like your one defense is your righteousness. But that's the opposite of what that's saying. You have to imagine a comma after my one defense. What it's saying is that when you stand before God, And, you know, assuming God asks you, you know, why should I let you in? Don't defend yourself. Don't point to your own righteousness. Point to the grace of God and Jesus Christ. My one defense, comma, my righteousness is what? The grace of God and Jesus Christ. Oh, God, how I need you. Anyway, I said to myself when that person brought that up to me, I thought, I will explain that the next time we sing that song. And then it turned out to be two days later. So there you have it. <clears throat> Perhaps the Holy Spirit knew that somebody here needed that explained. All right, well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn it to Acts 14.23. That's on page 923 in your pew Bible. Now, if you're a type A personality, you're already wondering, why are we starting this week with the same verse we ended with last week? That's a good question. Last Sunday, uh, we talked about how in the final stages of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey, when they got to the end of the line... Instead, they kind of traveled, if you can visualize an old clock, by the way, I suppose that illustration is the opposite of helpful now to people who don't use analog clocks, but if you can imagine a journey that uh, traveled from 2 o'clock on the clock all the way around to 10 o'clock, you might wonder, why didn't they just go back from, you know, all the way around, from 10 up to 11, 12, 1 and down to 2? Instead, they turn around at 10 and they go all the way back and they, they go through every town and village uh, where they had visited in order to set things in order. They gave some time for those little seeds to grow, and they went back around, and they collected up all those converts, and they did some stuff. They, they assembled them into some kind of order. So we talked about that last week, Acts fourteen twenty three, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and thanksgiving, or prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So last week we focused on the elders piece of that. That's the most interesting, perhaps, uh, part of that little story because, of course, if you do the math, right, if they turned around <clears throat> at 10 o'clock, then the people who got saved at 9 o'clock had, had only been Christians for like four weeks, five weeks. And so we ask the question, why did why did the apostles feel like it was so necessary for, for everybody to be under spiritual leadership? Why, why was that important? And this morning we're asking the other interesting question in that little picture Which is, why do they feel it necessary to gather them into churches in the first place? Why couldn't they just stay as individual converts, right? They had all these little individual converts throughout all. Why do they feel the need to gather them into clusters? That's what the word church actually means. The Greek word that is used there is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means congregation or assembly. So everywhere the apostles went, they gathered their converts into these little congregations, these little clusters, these little assemblies. Why is that? And it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas. All the apostles appear to have done the same thing. So in 1 Peter, for example, we see Peter addressing his converts, and he says to them, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, Peter's assumption is that as soon as you come alive in Christ, your little stone is going to be gathered together into something bigger, into these corporate entities. Individual stones are going to be gathered together into spiritual houses. New converts are going to be incorporated into this spiritual priesthood. And so we wonder why that is. Why, why can't these little stones just sit on their own? <clears throat> why can't all these individuals just continue to li- live their lives as individuals? Why gather them into clusters? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And, and I recognize that this is nowhere near as intuitive as it would have been 200 years ago. I, I think this is one of those sermons in the series that you probably wouldn't preach if you're preaching your way through the book of Acts 200 years ago. I don't think there would have been a lot of people sitting out there needing that explained to them, but this is not intuitive in our culture today. Uh, If you are coming to Christ today, you are coming out of the most individualistic culture in human history. That's not my opinion. Scholars are pretty unanimous in talking about that, and many of those scholars identify that as one of the main reasons why Christianity seems so foreign to people today. Jean Twenge, for example, in her book Generations, you've heard me refer to that before, it just came out about a month ago, she noted in her research that millennials are the least religious generation in North American history. She discusses this phenomenon at length. She attempts to provide an explanation when considering why this might be, she says succinctly, in short, because it is not compatible with individualism, and individualism is millennials' core value above all else. All right, well, that's, that's bad news, and the early data suggests that it actually gets worse with Gen Z, the generation that's coming up behind. There's a fundamental disconnect here. There's something that used to be assumed, that used to happen pretty naturally, that all of a sudden now seems pretty foreign, pretty strange, and pretty hard. You've got this new challenge today. When you lead someone to Christ, when you lead them to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have another challenge coming up right behind that. And the challenge is convincing them to be integrated into the larger work. According to the Bible, that's what Christians do. That's what Christians are supposed to do. It's all part of the plan. So why is that? Let's take a minute and walk our way through that because we need to make sure that we understand that here. can't assume that that we do, but we need to be clear on this so that we could explain it to a new convert. We heard this morning that you know, one of our folks here was able to lead a friend to Christ. Okay, well, guess what the next conversation is going to be? We need to be able to explain this stuff to new believers, so let's slow down and make sure we can. We're trying to answer the question, why do Christians go to church? I think the first part of that answer comes to us out of the passage we just read from 1 Peter. Christians go to church first and foremost to worship now you might say wait a second pastor i could i can worship god on my own i can listen to a chris tomlin album in my car and sing to my heart's content that is true you can do that and that's a very north american perspective but that is not the perspective being assumed and commended in the scriptures the passage we just read says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter doesn't say, when you become a Christian, you become your own little priest, and you can facilitate your own little worship services. No, he says, when you become a Christian, you become part of something bigger than yourself. You are a stone in the wall. You're a member of the priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Worship in the New Testament is explicitly communal in nature, in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, for example, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel." So the Apostle of the Hebrews is saying the exact same thing. When you come, you are coming to something bigger than yourselves. When you come to worship, you're not starting something. You are joining something. You are harmonizing with the angels and with the Old Testament saints and with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Do you see that? So yeah, for sure, you can sing along to Chris Tomlin in your car, but that's not why God saved you. God saved you so that you could add your voice to the choir. Remember, grace is about restoring nature. It's about taking us back to the garden, as it were, helping us to become again the people that we were created and intended to be. And in the garden, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. You were made for relationships. You were made for harmony. You were made to be a holy priesthood under God, singing His praises over all creation. So come. Let yourself be built into who we are. Fundamentally, that's why Christians come to church, to worship God as part of the larger choir. But as we've already seen in our journey through Acts, that's not the only reason they come. They also come to sit under teaching, to sit under biblical teaching, that adjective is important. It's not teaching per se that Christians are interested in. It's, it's not inspiring rhetoric. Uh, it, it's, it's not inspirational reflections. What we're after here is preaching and teaching from the Bible, from the whole counsel of God. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. In fact, that's the first thing that is said about the new converts. You remember there were 3,000 people who got converted uh, on Pentecost Sunday. The first thing that is said about them, this is the next verse, says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. As I said last week, the church is a word e teach e read e kind of place, and it always has been. So why is that? Why is teaching such a big deal? And the answer is that it's connected to the gospel that we believe in. We believe that human beings fell, and that when they fell, they were fundamentally changed. They were deceived and diminished. That's the human condition after the fall. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the Bible says, you know, who can even understand why people think the things they do? You know, they're sick. They're deceived. They're not themselves. But when you come to Christ, you get a new heart and you you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inside you begins to heal your desires, heal your thoughts, redirect your ambitions, your inclinations. And so now you are capable of becoming again who you were created and intended to be. You, you have the new hardware, but you still have to download the new software, and you do that by regularly sitting under the Word. The Bible is the truth. It tells us the truth about who God is, who we are, and how God has saved us and is restoring us through the person and work of Christ. And the more of that you sit under, the faster it is that you change. So, yes, Christians listen to a lot of teaching. That's a huge part of why we come to church. Now, you say, well, wait a second, though, Pastor. I could, I could listen to sermon downloads in my car. I, I, can, I can download the, the best sermons out there and listen to them on my earbuds as I walk in the woods, right? That's, you know, I can, I can basically get all my teaching from the interweb. Yeah, you could. Uh, but that wouldn't save you from the fundamental problem, which is, again, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Meaning, left to your own devices and left to the unlimited options of the Internet, you would simply accumulate teachers and teachings that conform to your own confusion. That's what individuals do, and that's what the Internet facilitates. But the church is a totally different thing. In the church, the Word comes at you from the outside, and somebody else chooses the topics and the content is policed by a plurality of elders. And over time, that makes all the difference in the world. Can you still listen to sermons on iTunes? Of course you can. But that's no substitute for the corporate learning process. Luther called this the external word, external, outside of us. And so here, I want to make sure you're not overhearing, but I want to hear, make sure that you're hearing correctly. You, everybody who goes to this church knows that I love the RMM Bible reading plan, right? I'm a big believer in, you know, reading your Bible every morning before you start the day. I've been doing the RMM Bible reading plan since 2012. I totally believe in it. I think it's fantastic. And yet, I'm self-aware enough to know that because I am a sinner and, and because the heart is deceitful above all things, and you say, well, wait, but pastor, you're a Christian, Right? Yeah, yeah. but you understand, I was saved out of a situation of complete self-deception. Now I have the Holy Spirit, who is transforming my thinking by one degree of glory to the next. Which means what? There is still confusion and clarity in me. And so I've noticed this incredible dynamic. Even though I read through the entire Bible every year, you know what I've noticed? My eyes are drawn to the parts that confirm me in the things I already believe. And I have an incredible capacity to completely skip over the things that would confront me and my weakness. And so do you, right? And so if all I did is read, is read the Bible on my own, and if all I did is go to the, you know, infinite buffet of the interweb to, to select teachings, then guess what? I'd get smarter, but I'd never get holier because I'd never be corrected. I would, I would never choose materials that would speak to my blind spots. This is why we need, again, what Luther called the external word. You need the word to come at you from the outside. You need to hear sermons on passages you think nobody has any business preaching on. If you've never come to church and thought, why in the world are they preaching on this, then you're going to the wrong church. About, I would say about 10 times a year, you should go home going, Okay, I've never heard a sermon on that, and I don't know if I want to ever again. It's the whole point. It needs to come at you from the outside. And you need to hear it together, because something amazing happens. See, when I read the Bible on my own in the morning, often, almost always, the Holy Spirit will convict me. But the thing is, there's nobody there to record that conviction or to be aware of it. And I have an incredible capacity to forget what the Holy Spirit tells to me at six in the morning. But see, the funny thing is, when we sit here together and we hear, you know what the person beside you heard today. In fact, like, don't look at them overtly, but just for a second right now, do a little bit of this right now. You know what that person just heard, and you're thinking right now how much they needed to hear that, aren't you? You're doing it right now. You're thinking, this sermon is exactly what this person needs to hear. Well, the funny thing is, that's a good thing. Now, the trick is, the person next to you is thinking the same thing about you. And they're going to watch how you live this week, and there is accountability in that. You know, they heard, I heard, we heard, we see. There is incredible amplified benefit in that. Sitting under the Word as a group in church is something we do because of who we are and who we are becoming. Thirdly, Christians go to church to encourage and support one another. We've Seeing this principle illustrated already in our walk through Acts, we see it commended very strongly in the epistles. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, the apostle says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So Christians go to church to support other believers in good works and to encourage one another in perseverance. That's important for us to see. The assumption in the New Testament is that being a Christian and doing Christian things requires Christian community. This is not a solo lift. This is not an individual project. When you buy things from Ikea, uh, you learn the difference between a solo build and and a team build, don't you? How gracious of them to let us know about these things. Because early on in my IKEA process, uh, I was not made aware of these things. But, but now, uh, it says right on the outside of the box, remember there's those two guys, uh, I don't know if they're guys or girls, they're generic stick figure, balloon figure people, and is it like two lifts or like one lift, right? It's either, this is a team build or an individual build. And uh, so you get something buy, you buy something small, you know, like a pencil or whatever. I don't know. Everything has to be assembled at Ikea. So, you, 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 you know, this is an individual lift. You put the cap on the pen. Ah! Uh, but, but pretty much anything bigger than that, I mean, my goodness, you buy a bed or a kitchen table or a credenza, and you got yourself a team build. And so it is in the Christian life. Pretty much everything we were told to do is a team build, isn't it? Jesus said to go into the world and make disciples. Do you think you can do that on your own? You know, do you think you can make a disciple on your own? Yeah, good luck with that, right? That's a team build. As we saw that, we've seen that all throughout the book of Acts. They're working together to make disciples. And then in Acts 13, we we, we see planting churches. That's a team build too. Do you think you can plant churches on your own? No way. That's not a one-person job. That's a whole church effort. We can't do Christian things unless we build supportive Christian community. And we can't live the Christian life without the support of the Christian community. Life is hard. It comes with ups and downs, highs and lows. And one of the reasons for Christian community is so that the people in the ups and the highs can support the people in the downs and the lows. And of course, you know that over the course of your life, you're going to switch spots in that process multiple times as you travel through various seasons. That's the beauty and the comfort and the glory of the church. Parenting, of course, is the ultimate team build. Raising kids in this culture is a daunting task. Uh, Children should come with those little bubble people on the outside saying, you know, team lift. It It takes a village. We talked about that this morning. This is why we had a young couple up here with their precious little one. They get it. They understand that they need our help to raise up a child in the ways and in the Word of Christ. I've I've said this before, and I always say it tongue-in-cheek, and I hope you understand how I'm saying it. I'm saying it sarcastically, but it's true. Even if I didn't believe in Jesus, I'd raise my family in the church. Now, don't tweet that. You know, Pastor Paul does not believe in Jesus. Not true. I 100% believe in Jesus. I'm just saying, even if I didn't, I'd raise my kids in the church. There is something magical about having another grown-up take your child out and just say the same things mom and dad says, but all of a sudden it sounds wise. Doesn't it sound wise when someone else says it? And you're like, hmm, you know, clean up my room, have decent habits, be nice. These things will lead to success. And you're like, the brilliant stuff. It's like, I tell you that every day. <laughs> yeah, but now when Ryan says it or when somebody else says it or when another adult takes the kids out and says, it's just like, oh, I'm going to write that down. It it is magic, isn't it? Isn't it? And just to see other families, getting an inside view on a couple other families, seeing how other families live out the Christian life. It's gold. Parenting is the ultimate team build. So we need it. We need it to be Christians. We need it to do Christian things. We come to church to support and encourage one another. And then fourthly, Christians come to church to provide a compelling witness to the world, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about the expected influence of the Christian in the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, we tend to think that Christians are going to exercise influence in the world either individually through their outstanding little life over there or politically as they collectively seize the levers of power in society. And yet Jesus here is talking about the power, the attractiveness, the witness of distinctive community metaphors of salt and light, city on a hill and stuff. All that, obviously, is about contrast. Jesus is saying, build something different. Build something better. Be a city on a hill in a dark and dying world. Shine your light, and people will come. (laughs) Can I tell you something, friends? That's how we're going to reach Aurelia, that's how we're going to reach this country. That's how we're going to reach the world, by building a community of contrast. The world out there is falling apart, right? You know that. It's coming, up, coming apart at the seams. This is the air that you breathe, the air of decline, deception, and death. I mentioned Jean Twenge's research a moment ago. In the same book, she notes that the teen suicide rate nearly doubled between 2007 and 2019. That is astonishing. Suicide rates, I mean, because that's a big step. Suicide rates don't typically double in time periods like that. They go up 1% or 2% or down 1% or 2% over decades. Something is going on out there. People are hurting. They are completely disoriented. Did you know that one in seven high school students right now in North America identifies as something other than straight. Our kids are lost and confused about the most basic realities in life. And they don't realize it now, but they will in 10 to 15 years. In 15 years, they're going to be waking up alone, middle-aged, over-medicated, scared, depressed, and disillusioned. And on that day, if we can be shining in here, if we can be happy and healthy and stable and alive, then we're not going to need evangelistic strategies and gimmicks. We're just going to need wide open doors and welcoming spirits. Influence and outreach for us has always been a team build. You can't make disciples on your own. You can't Reach a lost generation on your own. But by the grace of God, we can. Jesus said that we could. Jesus believed that we would. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hallelujah. Now, in the time that we have left, I just want to point you in the direction of appropriate application. We come together in the church to sit under the word of God, not to be entertained or even informed. Ultimately, we come so that we can change. Bible truth is supposed to result in life application. Spiritual call is supposed to result in personal commitment. So I want to end today just by asking a very practical question. How can you contribute to this project? Jesus told us to build a community of contrast. It's going to take more than one person. It's not something you can do on your own. We've got to work together. So what do we need from you? That's what I'm asking. Well, first of all, we need you to come. Church is not something that you can do online. We found that out over COVID, didn't we? In fact, I'll be honest with you. I think that was part of God's purpose for COVID. I've said this a bunch of times. Remember that old line from Men Against the Sea, hunger is the best sauce? Before COVID, literally, one of the things that we were talking about as an elders group is the fact that all of the sudden we had noticed a real shift in our attendance patterns patterns within the membership. Used to be our members attended church typically like eight Sundays out of ten. Everybody goes on vacation. Everybody gets sick. It'd gone down to about six six Sundays out of ten over a two year period. Like what in the world's going on? It's people getting busy. People you know getting getting self indulgent. People getting lazy. I guess whatever. And plus, you know, more and more kids. The richer we got as a society, the more money we had to, A, spend time on vacation. So the old two weeks of vacation became six. And uh, maybe your kids play house league hockey becomes all our kids are going to play in the NHL. Right? And so that's... Interestingly, that was one of the main things we were talking about before COVID. And then what did COVID do? Shut the whole thing down. And now... All of a sudden, our priorities are different. Do you remember the hunger? Do you remember the thirst? Do you remember the volume? The first couple Sundays we were all back together. I think part of God's purpose for COVID was helping us learn experientially the truth that we need to be together. Online church is, is like an IV, it can keep you alive during a trauma, but that's not how you're supposed to live. We need to be together we need to be here, we need to be in this place with one another. Now, we're going to keep the live stream. You know, we, one of the side benefits of COVID is every church in the universe figured out how to do services online. We're, we're going to keep the live stream because it's very helpful to people when they're sick. It's very helpful when people are traveling. So, it's not a bad thing, but it is not intended as a substitute for live engagement. So, come. The entire project depends on you being here. When you sing at home, you are not adding your voice to the choir. There is no additional harmony. When you listen at home, no matter what you learn, you can't apply it here. When you engage online, there's no way for you to do all the one-anothers that are mentioned in Holy Scripture. There's no way for you to Be a junior high sponsor. There's no way for you to serve at VBS. There is no way for you to fulfill the commitment you all stood and made about 45 minutes ago. Not in any meaningful sense. The entire project depends on you being here. So come. And then more than that, join. In the book of Acts, a distinction seems to be made between the crowd and the congregation. For example, in Acts 5, 12 to 13, Luke says... And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So in that little snapshot, we've got a congregation meeting in a specific place, and then a penumbra, like an outer fringe of people who were looking on, who certainly respected and admired everything that was happening, but who for one reason or another... Dared not to join. Others, though, we're being told, were not so concerned. They made, they took the plunge, they stood up to be counted, they were added to the number, multitudes of both men and women. One of the things you realize as you read through the New Testament is that the crowd is basically irrelevant. Jesus never counted on the crowd. He certainly never catered to the crowd. In fact, he often hid from the crowd but he bled and died for the congregation. They were his people. That's why it says, they were added to the Lord in Acts 5.14. Luke Luke is equating those realities. For Luke to join the church is to be added to the Lord, and vice versa. Like husband and wife, they kind of come as a package deal. So come. Join her. Join him. Make the commitment. Make it today today. You can talk to our pastoral intern, Scott Hogeveen. Pastor Matt is uh, with our satellite out in Coldwater, but uh, Scott Hogeveen is here today, and he's up to speed on how to navigate the membership process. It's not cumbersome. He can walk you through all that. If you believe in what we're doing here, if you want to help us build a community of contrast, if you really do think that Jesus Christ shining through a community of people is the hope of the world, then talk to Scott today. Maybe it's time for you to move from the crowd into the congregation. Then thirdly, if you want to be part of all this, then give. Now, maybe you expect me to feel awkward about saying that, but I don't in the least, because I was a Bible reader long before I was a pastor. And absolutely everything you see the New Testament church doing took people and money. Do you want to support widows? We love doing that here, don't we? We've got a very active deacons program. Do you want to support widows? Do you think that's a good thing to shine to the world? Well, guess what? That takes people and money as per Acts 5 and 6. Do you want to plant churches? Planting churches is pretty core to what it means to pursue the Great Commission. Do you want to do that? Well, that takes people and money, as per Acts 13 and 14. There is nothing that we do as a church that doesn't take people and money. So you need to tithe your time and your treasure. Just speak as bluntly as possible. We need five to seven hours a week from you. Some of that for worship, but some of that for service, mission, and ministry. We need you to tithe of your treasure because we do stuff here that costs money. Uh, Try renting a bus right now to take a group of students to Camp Mediba. Wow, everything we do costs money, more than ever before. But giving money has always been a way of demonstrating faith and commitment to the project. And not giving money has always been a way of communicating not faith and commitment to the project. Jesus said that to his disciples when he first sent them out in Matthew 10. He told them not to be self-supporting. That's interesting. Maybe there were some who were wealthy enough that they could have done all the work off their family money, off of either their income or dad's income. We don't know, but Jesus said, don't do that. He said, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey. Don't let mom even pack you a sandwich or two tunics or sandals. Don't take any of that stuff with you, for the laborer deserves his food. Make them support the ministry, he said. "They will tell you whether they believe in the message. Friends, like it or not, money tells the truth and time tells the truth. So if you want to contribute to this project, if you want to see it move forward, if you believe that, again, Jesus Christ shining through a community of people is going to be the hope of the world in the coming decades, then tithe of your time and your money. And then lastly, but by no means leastly, if you want to contribute to this project, then pray. If the book of Acts has shown us anything over the pages that we've read so far, it is the power of corporate prayer. Do you remember the story of Peter when Peter was in prison? Luke says something remarkable there. He said, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's an almost magical formula, isn't it? Something pretty powerful happens when earnest prayer is made for specific needs to God by the church. Corporate prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God and that summons providential actions to the earth. Now, that's not my opinion, that's Revelation 5 8 to 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the scroll representing the outworking of God's purposes on the earth, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You see that? In those bowls the elders in heaven are collecting and storing the prayers of the blood bought priesthood. And when the bowls are full then out tips providential action on the earth. Prayer changes things. Something happens when earnest prayer is made toward certain needs to God by the church. Prayers go up and providence comes down. Now, I know for a fact that most of the people in this room believe that. I guess what I'm asking today is whether you are practicing that. We have nine functioning prayer groups in this church that meet every week. Are you associated with one? My group meets on Thursday morning at 7 a.m. in the pavilion at Cooch Ching Park. You are more than welcome to join us. Or you can find a different one that better suits your schedule. This is what it means to be a holy priesthood. Priests speak to God on behalf of people and to people on behalf of God. That's who we were in the beginning. And because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is Who we are again. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder from the book of Acts. As we see these stories and read carefully these descriptions, we see things in us that are more culture than Christ. And we repent of those things. Lord, we have breathed deeply of the individualism of our culture. Um, Lord, There are many of us who like the idea of being our own solo believers, doing our own thing when it suits us or not. And yet, Lord, here we see that for our own safety and for the progress of the mission, we need to cluster together. And so, Lord, I pray that you would birth in us a fresh love and appreciation for community, that maybe, Lord, you'd even show us some of our blind spots. You'd make us nervous about being in charge of those blind spots maybe, Lord, you'd show us our limitations, make us very aware that we're engaged in any number of team builds, and that it's not safe or wise for us to proceed alone. Draw us into community, draw us closer to Christ. May the brightness of our witness grow and grow over the coming years and decades, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.